0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Next month marks the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. In Hong Kong, the territory had been occupied by the Japanese military for three years and eight months after both soldiers and civilian soldiers, both locally born and international, defended Hong Kong for 17 days in December 1941 before surrendering on December the 25th. Frode Olsen is a former senior police officer who lives in the Danish capital, Copenhagen. At a school reunion there, he saw the name of a former Danish pupil, called Kai Kerr, who had been killed in Hong Kong, and he wondered what had taken him there. As Frode will explain to me in this week's programme, this led him to investigate why three Danish men died here. Two were killed in the defence of Hong Kong, and one later in captivity. They were among ten men who volunteered both for the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps and the Naval Reserve. The men worked for shipping and trading firms here. Some, like Kai Kerr and Carl Wilkins, were young men who had recently arrived. Niels Orskov Christensen was a little older and came in from mainland China. Christensen would write a diary telling of his experiences. Frode Olsen took that diary Letters written between the families in Denmark and here, newspaper reports, recorded interviews and photographs, and put together a book about this Danish community and the men who fought, called Fighting for Two Kings Danish Volunteers in the Defence of Hong Kong, 1941. I talked with him on the phone from his home in Copenhagen.
1: In the beginning, I was curious because it was hard to imagine when I read the name of Kai Kheer at this memorial in my old school courtyard. Uh, as I, I write, I was surprised. Well, why would he be in Hong Kong? And what happened at, at the, uh, when he was he was killed 18th December 1941, why? And, and, and then, so all these questions. So in the beginning, I was curious. And at the time, I was, I'm a retired police officer. I've been working in the Danish police for 40 years. And um, at the time, in 2012, when I was home in in Copenhagen, I was home from China because I was posted to China from 2008 until 2013 as a police attaché at the Danish embassy. So I had a special relationship to China and to Hong Kong. So that was an additional reason for asking these questions. Why was he in Hong Kong? So I was curious when I returned to to my work in in, in Beijing and also the next time I was in Hong Kong, I started to talk to people down there and to colleagues and said, I realized that the war came in the beginning of December 1941. But I started to go into more depth in this. And gradually when I found out what happened to these people and and that Taika wasn't the only one, yeah, I became... uh, Difficult to say, but I think grateful that I had the opportunity to, to find out these things and even also a little bit honored that uh, even a book was the result of my efforts. So, and I think these, these people deserved it. It's strange that a visit to your old school because they celebrate 100 years anniversary can lead to this completely unexpected experience.
0: So, you're a retired police officer? Yes. And so, what was your special area?
1: I've been doing a lot of things, a lot of international crime, combating international crime. So I've been posted abroad quite a lot uh, in the Middle East, Yugoslavia, Far East also. But I was set up the one of the CID departments in Copenhagen, the Western, for some time. And I've been involved in many things, war crimes and yeah, all sorts of things. Very interesting work. Have you written before? Yes, I published actually I published five novels. Uh, one of them is translated into Chinese. I'm a police officer, and, and for obvious reasons, people expect that when a police officer starts to write fiction, it would be crime stories. It's natural. But at the other hand, when I started, I started it in 2000. I actually, I came home from Yugoslavia after I'd been coasting in Southeast Europe at that time during the uh, Yugoslavian Civil War i was around 50 at the time and i felt there so much that you would experience as a police officer meeting with people explanations given and so on and so forth that would never go into a police report because it wasn't relevant it wasn't evidence it wasn't relevant for the case or the investigation or didn't add it was not irrelevant for the court but it was still very, very interesting from a human perspective. And since there are so many people, so many writers that write crime stories much, much better than I would ever be able to do, I felt if a person with my background started to write fiction, you could also expect that I came with something different from what so many other people did so very well. So even though it's fiction about crime and involvement in crime, it's different, I mean, one of my novels i mean in the end, it turns out there was no crime at all, and, and people <laughs> some people may may be disappointed, but uh, I feel that, as i said if if a person with my background starts to write fiction, you could expect <laughs> something else and one of them was translated actually into chinese, it's called long kaito in in Chinese when the dragon uh, raises its head. And it, placed in in china and the main character is actually a young chinese cop
0: fighting for two kings danish volunteers in the defense of hong kong 1941 thursday december the 11th 1941 Moonlight and freezing cold. Niels Orskov Christensen had been on night duty and had only had a bit of tea to warm himself. He was relieved at seven in the morning and had just laid down to rest when the alarm sounded. Everyone tumbled out and stood about waiting for a few minutes. Then it emerged that the Japanese might attempt to come ashore on Lama Island, almost two miles to the southwest. Niels returned to his bunk where he fell asleep. At nine, he was woken up again. The cannon were firing away at two suspicious junks that had come too close to a mine barrage off the coastal batteries. At the same time, Japanese planes appeared once more and started dropping bombs on targets in Kowloon as well as in Hong Kong. Niels gave up on getting any more sleep.
2: In his diary, he wrote... The fort is rife with rumours that Kowloon has fallen, that the Chinese have begun to pressure the Japanese from behind, and that America must do something to help us. Personally, I think China will only be able to help us within the next six months, but will that be soon enough?
0: So you've got diary accounts, what other, it was newspapers.
1: Letters, Mm -hmm. tape recorded, interviews made by the Danish uh, Systems Museum newspaper articles interviews given after the war also the national archives i mean records of people traveling going back correspondence between the danish general consulate in shanghai and the danish foreign ministry about what happened to the danes and then who needed assistance and what, what is the fate of those who uh, were japanese war prisoners and so on anything pictures that could help telling the story
0: Explain to me what happens then. You have these young men who in Hong Kong, largely young men, some older, who are yeah. working for shipping companies, trading companies. War is coming. You've got the, the Japanese moving south. Mm-hmm. How did they make the decision to join the Volunteer Defence Corps and then to actually fight on that side in the defence of Hong Kong? And also, were they actually defying their own country's orders in essence?
1: The question came up in uh, spring of 1940. I think even though no one expected that the Japanese would ever attack uh, Great Britain or Hong Kong, still the British governor and the British rule in Hong Kong prepared in different ways. And then they encouraged all men who were able, no matter age or nationality, to join in what way they could. And it was a discussion, clearly you see it from that says it was a discussion among the men, the Danish men also. And there was a bored feeling that Hong Kong was their home, they had been welcome in Hong Kong. Some of them had been living there for decades, had their whole life. It's interesting that, and that goes also for other Europeans, that some people have in generation lived in, in Hong Kong or in Shanghai or in, in Nanjing, even Beijing at the time. And then have married perhaps English or Australians or Chinese and have had children. So you have a Danish person, a Danish man married to an Australian woman. They live in Shanghai. They have a child, a son. He speaks Danish and English and Chinese. Where does he belong to? What is his mother country or his nationality? And you see this this was a very, very interesting experience to learn about because people have been moving around the world. But for China, since the mid-1800, Danes have also, as many other Europeans, gone to China and settled down there, had their lives there. But it was clear for them that they wanted to join as best they could. They wanted to join the Hong Kong Military Defense Corps. And one of the conditions was at the time that they had to swear loyalty to the British king. And since some of these Danish men had already done their military service in Denmark and swear their loyalty to the Danish king, one of them said, we cannot swear loyalty to two kings. That would be perjury. So we have to find a solution to this question. And the question was put then first to the commander of the Hong Kong Defense Corps, and they said, so you have to do it. So they put the question to the Danish consul in Shanghai, and he put it to the Danish ministry, and they came back and said, you cannot, you cannot swear. You can join, we don't mind, but you cannot swear. And since the British would not make an exception, they had very embarrassingly, they had to, to, to pull out in the spring of 1940. But when Germany attacked Denmark and Norway and joined the whole campaign in Europe, 9th of April, Denmark was occupied by the German forces. They decided, no matter what, we join anyway, so they returned. <laughs> For so it's me. And i forget. For are good?
0: He was i i
1: this loyalty question, it was a formal question in the in sense that they um, said, now it doesn't matter really. So they joined in a way and, and made the commitment to the British king. And that was the basis of the title in Fighting for Two Kings. Yes. Even they, yeah. But it was complicated, and and it's interesting also why, because the motives for joining, apart from that Hong Kong had welcomed them, they felt like Europeans. Some of them expressed the disgust, actually, because they had witnessed the Japanese expansion in China. Nils Roscoe Christensen and his wife had to escape from Canton, Guangzhou. When Canton was uh, was attacked by the Japanese uh, to Hong Kong, they fled to Hong Kong. They had seen how brutal the warfare was, so they were. That was also part of the motive. Nils Ersker said clearly, he wouldn't go away. He wouldn't escape one more time. This time, he would stay and defend his home and his family. Nils Örsko Christensen, he was he was what you would expect. He was a very unique person. A true gentleman. After the uh, surrender, he tried always to not to be judging people too too much. But still, uh, his motive, and uh, that was also the thing that some others said, they wanted to defend their home.
0: Friday, December the 12th, an announcement by Hong Kong Governor Mark Young.
3: We have successfully evacuated our troops, supplies and essential services from Kowloon. Yesterday the enemy pressed his attack with vigour and in the face of his superior numbers we had to fall back. It will be appreciated that the bulk of our garrison has, from the beginning, had to be retained on the island to safeguard our main base. Every man and woman must contribute a war effort to this end. There is every reason for confidence, both military and civil authorities have for a long time been working to a situation where the reserves of food, guns and ammunition are ample for a protracted defence on a siege scale. Friday, December the 12th. It was a hopeless task. By noon, the
0: last remaining troops were withdrawn from Kowloon. Kai Khe and the first company were ordered to go to the Star Ferry Pier to assist in the final evacuation. Even the smallest boats were used. The stench from refuse, shattered sewers and corpses in the streets penetrated the air. Mortars and artillery shells were exploding everywhere. And the first Japanese infantry soldiers with raised bayonets had emerged along the frontages of Nathan Road. In the crowds by the ferries, knuckles, elbows and knees functioned as efficient entry tickets. In Stanley, the Danes became aware that the rumours of Kowloon's fall were becoming a reality.
2: Niels Orskov-Christiansen wrote, There's another air raid on the go. Kowloon is now definitely being given up. Cannot expect ever to see our home again. As long as we save our lives, Karen, Lisbeth, Steen and I will be all right. Still keeping up the good spirits. The American declaration of war against Germany and Italy was good news. Now we just need a bit of music from the Russian side.
1: These people, Nils Roskogh and Khan, they had had their son in March 1941. Erik Kütemeier and his wife Lise, they had a son in April. So they had families. Morgan Spay, who was head of the East Asiatic Company, uh, Danish East Asiatic Company, he had also a son, three years old. These people had, had their life and their family and the things, so and then duty duty was a very very clearly motive they felt they had an obligation yes at the time there there was no even though some of them must have realised it can go very very bad they they didn't hesitate yeah
0: that is the issue is that that, I mean uh, troops were thin on the ground it wasn't well protected they would have known what they were even though there were some on the British side some rather superior views about their Japanese foes Karen Lisbeth Christensen, Niels' wife, woke up early. Nobody slept heavily anymore. That day, there was no water in the taps. There was, however, a great reserve tank on the roof of the house, which would be able to supply the house with water for a few more days. Buckets and bathtubs were filled, but everyone was encouraged to use water sparingly. She wrote, Suddenly, Niels was outside the house, It was nine in the morning. He had leave until three o'clock. He had his rifle with him so that he could shoot some spies if he saw any, he said and laughed. He held Steen in his arms and I just couldn't get enough of looking at him. We talked about our home and all the things that had been left across in Kowloon, even the Christmas presents we had each bought but not had the opportunity to give to one another. Everything would be fine as long as we got through safe and sound.
3: Hong Kong Governor Mark Young, Wednesday, December the 17th. His Excellency declines most absolutely to enter into any negotiations about the surrender of Hong Kong. And he takes this opportunity to notify Lieutenant General Takashai Saikai that he is not prepared to receive any further communication on the subject.
0: December 19th, Niels Orskov Christiansen wrote in his
2: diary: "Complete chaos. The Japanese have landed by the hundreds at Taeku and have taken Wong Le Chong Gap. No more food supplies from town. Air raid at 8:30 a.m. No damage. All leave suspended. The guns at Cape Daguilar destroyed. Spent the entire night lying out in the open on a mountain in order to cover the retreat of our troops."
0: Thursday, December the 25th, Stanley Fort. In the dark, a certain amount of confusion arose, and some soldiers were sent out to the other side of the barbed wire surrounding the fort. Niels Orskoff-Christiansen was already at his post by gun number one.
2: It was serious, and everyone understood that. The dark made it doubly scary. We were completely cut off from the rest of the world in a small peninsula with just one mountaintop between our forts and the Japanese. When the last line fell, the feeling was that the garrison would be killed in one big massacre, because the inside of the fort was not suited for defence. In pride and
3: admiration, I send my greetings this Christmas day to all who are fighting and all who are working so nobly and so well to sustain Hong Kong against the assaults of the enemy. Fight on. Hold fast for king and empire. God bless you all in this, your finest hour. Let this day be historical in the grand annals of our empire. The order of the day is to hold fast. In
0: terms of Niels Christensen, can you tell me his story? So he basically fights and then is in captivity.
1: He's in captivity. Two of the Danes were killed in battle. One of them is Kaikea, the young man who uh, was at the memorial plate at my old school. He was killed on the, on the night between the 17th to the 18th December. That's the night where most allied Hong Kong defense altogether, uh, regular soldiers and, and, and volunteers, are killed. And, and he was in the narrow road between Mount Butler and Mount Davis, Pillbox 45, and he was there. He was a member of the first company with an infantry regiment under the Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps. And the last report about his whereabouts is one of the survivors, most of the men in that first company was killed. But one of the others said he saw Kaikea surrounded by six Japanese soldiers. That was the last of him. And KaiKia was found, I think it was the 8th of January. They were buried where they were found, most of them, and later moved to, in this case, Saiwan. So Kikea, this very I think when you look at him, he looks shy, he was a very clever he was the best in his class. I don't think he was a soldier at all. very few of them had any experience of, of they had been done their military service in denmark but but um yeah, the other one uh I will come back to nils uh the other one is Kurt Wilkins. Kajker and Kurt Wilkins were working together and, and living, actually, also there, sharing an apartment, which was normal for these young men. They were They were posted for five years, typically for their company. And in the first posting, they could not go home at all, no leave, nothing. And they could not be married. After five years' time, they could go back. ...and go home, and, and if they didn't have a fiancé, they were very busy finding one, because they normally would return within three or four months. And they had to find a woman that was prepared to, first of all, marry them, and also to join them in their career at And He was close to this five-year term. Quadrigans came a little bit later... And he was a gunner, and he was posted to what is called Cap Aquila It was the first battery. And when the Japanese attacked Hong Kong Island, they divided the island in two, and they had to abandon Cap Aquila And they blow up all the cannons, the British, so the Japanese wouldn't be able to use them, and then all the Gunners from Captain was taken to Stanley, but they didn't have any guns anymore. So for Christmas Day, the day the surrender came, all these extra gunners who hardly knew how to handle a, a rifle were sent out to fight the Japanese on foot. And there was a big battle around St. Stephen's College where there was so much drama. Kurt Hilkins and quite a few other young men died there. He was, as far as I've been able to find out, he was defending uh, what was, at the time, the science building. It still exists. Oh, wow. So he was killed there. Nils survives. He was posted at Stanley, also as a gunner, like most of the other Danes. And uh, as they surrender, they are taken first to a prison camp at North Point. And then, later the Japanese moves most of them up, to Shamshuipo, yes, where there was used to be a barrack, and, and that's the big place where most of the war prisoners are. Nils was uh, together with the Danes in in Sham Po, but the condition, as you know, was very, very bad. Food conditions health. So Nils died uh, one year after in Sham Po. in Sham Po, and his wife. Karen, when they had their son in March 1941, she decided to give him a diary, a book with blank pages, because she felt now he should start to write down what he felt about being a father and things and be a little bit, yeah. And he was a very uh, thoughtful person. He, uh, his letters are very different from most letters because he writes about all sorts of subjects and uh, quite philosophical also at, at times, to, among others, to his father. He didn't really write in the book in the beginning, before the war, at some point Karen takes out the uh, diary and take a look at it, <laughs> and see there's not much written. So she writes in that, when are you going to write here in this book? Uh-huh. And and for strange reasons, he has it with him at uh, Stanley, and he also brings it to the Shamsurepo prison camp. And there he starts to write. And it's a very thick book. And uh, as he's getting to the end, and, and there's less and less pages left, his writing, his handwriting is getting smaller and smaller, and it's completely filled up. His good friend, Erik Hürtemeier, when Nils dies, his good friend, Erik Hurtemeyer takes care of his belongings. And he realizes that the diary has to be buried because it was not allowed for the, uh, by the Japanese. So he uh, ducks a hole somewhere in Champs-Elysees and buried it there, and that is in December 1942. And Erik Hudemeyer survives the war. I think he lost half of his body weight when the liberation comes in late August 1945. And the war prisoners are the first ones to be evacuated after the war, and they are taken different places. Some are taken to uh, Australia. Erik Hudemeyer is taken to um, England. And uh, his wife, the wives are taken quite soon after, but the war prisoners were in a very bad condition, so they had to take them out first. But Eric says he doesn't want to see his wife for, I think, three or four weeks because he looks very, uh, yeah, he doesn't like to show his wife how he looks just after the war. Oh,
0: wow.
1: He returns, actually. He was working for Nordic Feather Company, a big danish company at the time and uh, after the war he and his wife and his son returns to hong kong to his work and uh, one of the first things he does is he goes out to shamsui po he finds the place he buried the uh, diary, diary and he finds it and uh, he brings it home to denmark to karen that haven't seen after Nils and all the other Danish war prisoners, all war prisoners were taken as war prisoners, they were not allowed to see their wives, their family. Only sometimes to the, the defense, uh, they could wave, but they couldn't talk meat. And he uh, gives Karen this diary and, and, and it's a very emotional thing, even now when I consider it. and And she says that Getting that diary is just like getting Nils back because this is three, four years after he lost him. And uh, all his thoughts about their life and future and mm-hmm. his concerns about how she is and the boy after the Japanese occupation is in the book. <laughs>
3: Når du har hvilet pound, min fag Når du kysser mine lægeborg Og visker ømt mit navn